Heavenly Father, Father, you tell us in your word that we are one body by your spirit, united, not just with those that we know from our own congregation, but with those around the world. And I find it so helpful, Father, that you have found this dramatic way to remind us of that. For even as we are separated physically, we are no less one body in spirit, worshiping together in spirit and truth, studying your word, worshiping you in praise, praying for one another. And Father, though we don't see one another and we are distant geographically, we know, Father, that all of that ministry, all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our prayer, and now even our study at your feet, all of this, Father, is united in your audience. For as you look down from your throne, you see it all, as if we were in one big room together. For we are, Father, this earth is yours. It is the footstool to your feet, so we literally are seated at your feet. So, Father, we thank you for that uniting that you alone can do. We ask, Father, that our separation physically would be short, that those, wherever they are, Father, who may be battling the disease that has separated us would be made well. They'd be comforted in the meantime, Father, and you would shorten and put an end to this trial. But, Father, not before it does the work that you have intended it to do in our hearts and in the world. For we know, Father, you are wise and good and perfect in all your ways and that these things have purpose in your glory. Now, Father, as we turn to the word, give us an eternal perspective on it so that we may live it out and look forward to the day that we experience everything new again with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you've been with us in in this study, you know where we are. We're back now in a scene on the Tuesday before Jesus' death on the week that he died. In this moment, he's in the temple teaching and he's being confronted by religious leaders, in this case now by Sadducees and Pharisees. These men have been on a mission to discredit Jesus in front of the crowds or uh, to trick him into saying something by which they can accuse him of. Meanwhile, Jesus is on his own mission to demonstrate himself to be that worthy and perfect, sinless lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. So, Jesus, in this encounter with these men, has been constantly outmaneuvering them in the conversation. He keeps shining the light of scrutiny back on these guys, even as they try to expose him. Now, this is a good reminder that we cannot judge God, nor should we even try, for he is always above our judgment. These men didn't stand a chance at exposing Jesus. Jesus was perfect and without sin, and they had plenty of it. So, inevitably, the scene will end with them looking foolish. Now, So far as Jesus has gone in this conversation, he's faced a question of his authority at the outset of this encounter. That's when they asked him by what authority he taught. And if you remember, he refused to answer that question. He did so on the grounds that these men really didn't care about the answer. And he proved that by asking them about John the Baptist's authority and these men said they didn't know. And yet they never intervened to stop his ministry, did they? And so on that basis, Jesus said, well, why should I bother answering your question about my authority? Now, after he answered the question that way, what what happened after that was a withering attack on Jesus' part. He launches into a series of parables directly out of that moment to expose the hearts of these men. And he uses parables in this encounter to draw them in to a discussion that they don't see coming. And then before it's over, he's turned the tables on them in the parable. And every time he does this, 
He publicly humiliates them. I want you have to imagine the scene here. They're, they're in a very busy place. The temple is a big open area. There are literally tens of thousands of people in this area, and Jesus has attracted a huge crowd. So these men are on the spot in front of the people that they claim to lead spiritually. Now let's remember also, Jesus is about two days away from his own death at this point. And these men are the ones who we know ultimately bring Jesus to his death by charging him and then handing him over to the Romans. And they're gonna move against Jesus as a result of their jealousy, both jealousy for his popularity, but also out of a hatred for the way that he keeps undermining their authority in front of the people. Now Jesus, for his own sake, he knows this is coming, and in fact, he's foretold it's coming many times already. Now isn't it interesting then that they are the reason he dies, and yet here he is provoking them in this conversation. It would appear as if Jesus was making an effort to bring about the circumstances of his own death. And as such, it tells you who's truly in charge here. Jesus is exposing the religious leader's con game, for lack of a better term, knowing that as he provokes their evil hearts, they will react in a predictable way. They're gonna plot against him, they're gonna seek to kill him, in the end they're going to, and as they do, they're gonna think they're getting their way. They're gonna think they're triumphing over Jesus. But in reality, Jesus is in control of all of these events from the very beginning, which is exactly what Peter told these same men later when he spoke at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verse 22. A part of what Peter says is this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What a beautiful intersection of God's sovereignty through the actions of men. Peter acknowledges it was these men of Israel who nailed Jesus to the cross indirectly through the Romans, and yet that plan was predetermined by God. So as we go through studying these escalating events, the tension between Jesus and these men and all that comes from it, just remember everything we're reading is God's plan. That's exactly the way God intended it to play out. In effect, Jesus' confrontation with these men is sealing his fate on the cross, but that's exactly what God wanted. All right, now let's move into chapter 22 today. And the conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders just gets worse as we go further, of course, and it begins again with another parable. Jesus now teaches them a third parable coming out of their first confrontation. Chapter 22, verse one. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went on their way one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Well, we'll start there. And it's obvious, as you've seen now with the earlier parables that we've studied, that Jesus' focus is always on the religious leaders, although he also talks about other issues as well. Now, in this case, uh, this parable is about them, but it's also about Israel as a whole. Now, if you look back to the first of the parables he's taught in this section, you had two sons, 
They, in that story, the, the point was to explain the true heart of these men, of the Pharisees. They were like the second son in that story who gave lip service to his father about doing work, but at the end of the day, he had no interest in obeying. That was a way of telling us about the self-serving, hypocritical nature of the religious leaders that ruled Israel in that time. They were using religious systems of their own invention as a means of personal gain. It was all about themselves, it was all about money. And then the second parable was about that vineyard owner. And in that parable, the explanation was on how the religious leaders rejected Jesus' authority. And if you remember, in that parable, we learned that though the religious leaders uh, saw Jesus' claims to being Messiah for what they were, they didn't reject him because they didn't understand or because they didn't believe. They rejected him because the possibility of Jesus actually being the Messiah was a great threat to their Pharisaic system of religion. They had built this fabulous system within Israel called Pharisaic Judaism, which put them at the center of the power, brought all the money to them, all the power, all the, all the authority was theirs in that system. And here's Jesus saying that system was nonsense and not from God. And so they opposed Jesus, not on religious grounds, but on personal economic grounds. They didn't want Jesus to put a stop to Pharisaic Judaism. He was gonna kill the goose that was laying all their golden eggs. And that's why they turned him down. And now we have this third parable. Now this parable is set in a wedding feast and a wedding is perhaps Jesus' favorite way of picturing the kingdom, of entering the kingdom. And specifically this parable is about how you enter the kingdom of heaven, that is who will enter it and how and who will not. And it starts with a king who has a son who's getting married and the king is making preparations for a wedding celebration. And as a result, he invests a lot of resources in producing a great feast. He butchers prized animals. He makes all the necessary preparations. And then it came time to invite guests to this wedding. And the king chooses who he will invite, of course. Anyone who has a wedding knows you get to pick who comes to your wedding. And he sends his slaves out to call the guests that he's selected. But then the slaves go out and discover that these invited guests are completely indifferent to the opportunity to attend. And in fact, some even respond by abusing and killing the slaves when they bring the invitation. Now, before we go any further in this parable, we need to stop here for a second because it's important to appreciate the significance of what's happening at the outset of this parable. You know, in Jesus' time, in the, in the times in which he lived, there was no special occasion more important than the anticipation of going to a wedding feast. A wedding feast was all about being extravagant in that day, especially if the family hosting the wedding possessed the kind of wealth that a king would, like the the man in this parable. So you have to imagine this for a moment. The feast that would accompany a wedding in that time would include multiple livestock being uh, butchered and, and cooked and made part of the meal. You'd have oxen, you'd have goats, you'd have sheep slaughtered. I mean, this would literally be more meat in that setting than most people in that time would see in an entire year. Uh, it's off the scales of extravagance. And beyond that, there would be more wine served at a wedding than anyone could possibly drink. You remember in the story of the wedding in Cana in John chapter two, Mary was concerned because they might run out. That's serious uh, a problem for a wedding if you run out of wine. You're not supposed to run out of wine at a wedding. 
And beyond the meat, the, the meal would go on and on. The, the menu just went on and on, as did the music, as did the games and the celebration. And, and you need to understand, this party didn't just go on for hours. It went on for days. Weddings could last as long as a week. I mean, just imagine day after day after day of celebrating and eating in this way. So, if you were invited to the wedding feast of a wealthy family. You didn't just accept the, va- the invitation, you bragged about this invitation. You wouldn't dare miss this wedding. It was the social occasion of your year. I mean, simply put, no one turned down a wedding feast in that day. And so the king's slaves, when they go out to invite these people to join, they're expecting a reception of people jumping for joy, uh, of, you know, just unbelievably glad about the fact that they get to go to this event. And then look at the reaction in the parable, though. Now you get an appreciation for how stunning this is. You have people who are indifferent to the idea of going to the wedding feast. They can't even bother to consider it. They're too busy with their daily you know, way of life. And even more bizarre than that, some act in hostility against the slaves who brought them this good news. They kill them for bringing this invitation. Now, these responses are inconceivable, they're inexplicable, and they're inexcusable. No one would do this. So as you hear the opening circumstances of this parable, I want you to imagine the crowd that's hearing Jesus tell this story in the temple. They hear this, and they hear about these people refusing such a lavish wedding invitation, and I think they're probably giggling a little bit at the foolishness of these invited guests. But here's what's so ironic about that. Because that's exactly what this crowd and others in Israel were doing to the invitation that Jesus and his disciples had given them concerning the kingdom. Because the Father in heaven had offered to Israel in Jesus' day the kingdom and all they had to do was receive their king, receive their Messiah, which he offered to them. His invitation went out by way of slaves, but in the case of Real life, we're talking about Jesus' apostles and his disciples, the slaves of Christ, bondservants, the Bible calls us. They went out to Israel, calling Israel, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And even before them, you had John the Baptist and his disciples, that's the first group of slaves in this parable, because you have two groups, you notice. The first group that went out is picturing John and his disciples, who said to Israel, repent, for your Messiah is about to appear, and then Jesus sent his disciples out later with the message that the kingdom was at hand. And how did the nation of Israel respond? Well, they foolishly responded in indifference to the offer that Jesus made to them. Now think about this. Had Israel accepted the invitation that they were offered, what would have followed in that time would have been the nation not only receiving the kingdom in that day, but as a result, they would have experienced the world's greatest wedding feast ever, because the Bible tells us that the kingdom will be inaugurated, it will be begun with a great feast. The Bible calls that future celebration the wedding feast or the wedding supper of the Lamb, and it will make a normal earthly wedding banquet look like a sack lunch. Isaiah describes it this way, Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, On this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine, 
And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, when the Lord throws a party, He does it right. And the one that opens the kingdom will be a party like no other. Isaiah says it will be lavish. And the Hebrew word there for lavish is literally the Hebrew word for fat, which I find interesting because it means this feast is gonna make you fat and that's not a bad thing when it's God doing it. And it features choice pieces of meat, of marrow. And then he says fine aged wine. I like the fact that he repeats that. I think that's a way of emphasizing we're not gonna miss the good stuff. And everything that's served will be only the best. And even better than that, this feast will take place at a time when all those who are invited will be without death, without sorrow forevermore. So in that sense, this party never ends. I mean, it's not gonna be like you wake up hungover the next day or it's Monday, you gotta go back to work and oh, I guess that was fun while it lasted. No, the fun never stops in the sense that the kingdom goes on and the joy of being there is forevermore. Isaiah says, we will all say in that time, behold, this is the God who saved us, and I love that last line, this is the God on whom we have waited. Not in the sense that he was late, but in the sense that we anticipated this moment for so long, and now we have it. That feast will mark the beginning of a thousand years of kingdom life, and then, of course, more after that, and this is just the opening event. This is just the tip of an iceberg of joy which we'll experience while we're there. And Paul says that you can't even begin to appreciate how nice this is gonna be. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that the kingdom is so glorious and all that awaits us there is so marvelous you simply have no earthly idea how good it will be. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He's quoting there from Isaiah again, Isaiah 64 in this case. He says this, God has prepared things in the kingdom for those who love him which humanity cannot even imagine. So there are gonna be things there, he says, that we will see that no eye has ever seen. There's gonna be things there we hear, no ear has ever heard, that the, thought, the, the things of the kingdom will be things that have never even entered into the heart of man, which is a way of saying you've never even imagined them. So let's try this little thought experiment together for a moment. I want you to imagine all the wonderful things you could ever want, all of them. Start with the things at the top of the list, but don't stop there. Go to the bottom of your list and then add some more things. Everything you could possibly expect to make your life as wonderful as you ever thought it could be, And then, from there, I want you to take all the good things that every other human being you know has ever imagined and all the things they might desire, which could be things you haven't even thought of, add that to your list. And then, I want you to take all the good things that every human being who has ever lived on earth has ever wanted or desired, put all that together, and you still have not even come close to imagining how wonderful the kingdom will be. That's what the Bible says is your future if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Israel could have enjoyed in the day that Jesus came to them, offering them this feast. And yet, with all of that background, now consider how they responded to this parable. 
In the parable, the people who received, the guests who received this invitation, they were indifferent to Jesus' offer. They just go about their day. They try to make their way in this world, dealing with all that it presents, and in the process, they're willing to forfeit the next world as a result. Now, doesn't that seem like a ridiculous trade? I mean, what explains that? Well, actually, there is an explanation. There is a rational reason why they did this. Just look at what did get their attention, and you get your answer. Jesus says they went about their businesses, or their farms, as it were. In other words, they had their eyes on this world and not on the next. They were so absorbed in how to keep their businesses afloat or how to find labor to harvest their crop or whatever was, you know, was on their mind that day about their life, they had the same worries and concerns that mankind has always had and always will have from the beginning of time until the Lord returns. And because they were so busy trying to make this world into heaven, they ended up missing the opportunity to receive the true heaven. And that's why the same people who would never have dreamed of turning down a wedding feast did turn down an opportunity to join the kingdom feast. Do you know why? It's because they knew from experience what a wedding feast was like, so when they were given opportunity for it, they jump at it because they know what's in it. But by the same token, they had no faith or understanding of what the coming kingdom was going to be like. And so when the offer for that was put in front of them, they didn't know what to make of it. And they certainly weren't going to be bothered with trying to figure it out. So they chose what they knew over what they didn't know. They chose their regular lives, their businesses and farms and the like, over kingdom life. And they were also, by the way, choosing a religious system that they knew very well, the Pharisaic system, over the freedom that Christ was offering in faith in him. They turned down the freedom of grace and of joy and all that comes by faith. So like guests refusing to attend a lavish wedding, they were making a crazy, foolish choice. But friends, that's exactly what we do. We make crazy, foolish choices whenever we take our eyes off eternal things. When we don't understand what the Bible says about our eternal future, we can't evaluate it in comparison to what we know here. And if we are ignorant of what the scriptures offer us about our future, then all we'll have to rest on is what we know here. And that's so sad because what we have here is passing and what we have coming is eternal. But that's how the enemy will often distract us. When you stop living with eyes for eternity and you let this world start to drive your thinking, then you're always gonna choose it over things of faith because you go with what you know. And that's why the Bible says faith is having confidence in things unseen and knowing what the kingdom will be like. I mean, I just gave you a taste of it, right? We just talked about the opening scene of the kingdom and even that should be enough for you to think, man, I don't wanna miss that. Well, can you imagine what the other thousand years has? And let me tell you, we don't know all that it has, certainly. Paul just said that. But we do have some things, and the Bible has given us quite a bit of detail about the kingdom. Study that. Understand that. The more real the kingdom becomes to you, the less real this world will be. Because this world's passing away, and that one is coming soon. And if you live for things here and now, and by that I mean if they are your priority to the extent that they push aside interest in things eternal, then you are not living out your faith. You're living against your faith. That is to say, what you're doing is you're exhibiting a confidence in things you know are passing while ignoring and not giving your attention to things that you know are coming. Now look, I know we're all facing uncertain times right now. I mean, two months ago, 
life here was you know, business as usual, and today it feels like we're living through a Hollywood disaster movie, right? And people are confined in their homes, they're, they're worried about their jobs and their businesses. You know, you're watching your retirement shrink as the market drops, and this is to say nothing about you know, worries of disease or death. And then there's even afterward, right? I mean, after this crisis ends, uh, and I'm, we all hope it will soon, nonetheless, we wonder, what's our world gonna look like when this is over? And so as a result, I know there are many family of, you may have family or friends uh, who are fearful about the future. In fact, you may be fearful about the future. But friends, if you're dwelling on those concerns to the exclusion of heavenly things, then you've got your eyes in the wrong place. Set your eyes on eternity. Because the longer you stay in that mindset, the more you risk missing what God is doing right now in this time, in you, in the church, and in the world. You're passing up something eternal because you're looking down instead of up. Consider what Paul says about this in Colossians chapter three, verse one. He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, which is a way of saying, if you've put your faith in Christ, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, that is when he returns, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So Paul says, set your mind on things above. And I love the phrase, set your mind on your life hidden in Christ. I love that line. If you've never understood what that line means, it's so simple. The Lord has prepared a future life for us as believers, and that future life is in the kingdom and beyond. And it's hidden in the sense that you certainly can't see it yet, and as Paul said earlier, you can't even imagine it. So it's hidden, it's, it's there, we know it's there, we know it's coming, we know it's real, I just can't describe it to you very well. I can't tell you all the details about it yet. But friends, it is just as assured as the life you have now, and it's coming. So Paul says, Keep your mind focused on that life, not on this life. Don't be like that generation of Israel who was so weighed down by this world, they missed the next. And look, no one predicted this particular crisis would come, I get that, but we knew already that the Bible told us hard times would come in the last days. That is not a surprise. We just didn't know how. So things like we're facing now should not be a surprise, not in the big picture, nor do they suggest that God has lost control nor that he's forgotten about us. Remember, Jesus was at work provoking the very religious leaders who ended up bringing him to his own death, and he knew that's what was gonna happen. And why did he do it? Because it was gonna be a good outcome for the world when it was over. And likewise, look, we know the Lord is moving somewhere with all these events. He's got a plan. He's got some purpose in it. But here's where it's going, because you don't have to guess on that. There's a plan to move this world to a point where Jesus comes back, and then the kingdom begins. And it needs to happen, hallelujah, that it will happen. And from my point of view, the sooner the better. So we've all read at times, I'm sure, about martyrs in past you know, centuries and generations, about saints that persevere in their faith during difficult times, and we admire them for their witness, I'm sure. We read those stories. But have you ever secretly wondered, gee, I wonder if I could have done what they did. I wonder if I could have been that kind of Christian under those circumstances. Well, you know what? Your time is now. This is our time to shine in the darkness. This is our time to be light of the world for Jesus. Not to you know, run into harm's way unnecessarily, but just to stand up to the world in its current circumstance without fear, without succumbing to the anxieties around us, 
and to look up, to tell people about Jesus. Keep your eyes on your life hidden in Christ. Do as Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, make the most of your days because they're evil, because the time here needs the light. All right, now back to the parable as we end this. There was one group in the end there that we heard killing slaves who came to them with that invitation. It's a very extreme behavior, of course, and we know who he's talking about. Like the earlier parables, he's talking about the religious leaders here again who opposed Jesus. Now, these men did more than the average Jew who just overlooked the offer. These men actively opposed it, and by doing so, they show themselves to be truly evil men. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other religious leaders of Jesus' day, apart from a few who, like Nicodemus and others, came to know Jesus as Lord, the vast majority of them were in the grip of Satan. They were under his control, being used by him to try to stop the plan of God, which is kind of ironic because they would portray themselves as the most religiously pious among those in Israel. They were actually the farthest from God. So Jesus finishes the parable explaining how the Lord's gonna deal with both groups, that is, with the general population of Israel who were ambivalent, as well as with the leadership who thought they could gain heaven on their own terms. That goes to verse seven of Matthew 22. The parable ends, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. All right, so the king was so enraged at the response of his subjects, he sends his armies out to destroy, quote, the murderers, that is the religious leaders, and to set fire to the city. Now, we know this was actually fulfilled in AD 70. That is, in AD 70, the Lord sent the Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and that happened as Daniel foretold in his book, And think about the history of this. The Romans didn't just destroy the temple, knock down the walls and all the rest, and scattered Israel outside the city. They did those things, yes, but they also put an end to Pharisaic Judaism, at least in the way that it had been known. The Pharisees and the Sadducees lost their base of power when the temple was gone and the city was gone, and they never returned to that power again, not in the way they had it. They disappear off the pages of history, just as Jesus said would happen here. Meanwhile, In the parable, the king says, there must still be a wedding celebration, so we're gonna go looking for new guests. And he sends his slaves out again, but notice this time, they can't go to the city, that's where they started the first time, but there is no city now, so instead they go out to the highways. That is, they go out into the countryside looking for those outside the city, and they find as many as they can, invite them to be part of this tremendous feast, this invitation of a lifetime. Now, In Jesus' day, if you lived outside the protection of city walls, that meant you were among the lowest within society. Generally, you were either an outlaw or you were destitute or something of that sort. So I want you to imagine in this parable the kind of ragtag group that's now being assembled for this lavish wedding fit for kings, right? This is not an A list of guests. They're not even the B list for that matter. Some aren't even good, Jesus says. That means these are the criminals. These are the vagrants that are just out and about wherever. And of course, we know who this group represents, right? That is the the ragtag group here that's invited in place of those in the city are the Gentiles of the church. We were not the original invitees. We were not the original guests 
in this wedding. The original guests were supposed to be the Jewish people to whom the covenants were made or given, and they were the citizens of the city of Jerusalem. We are those like the people outside the city. I hate to say this if you didn't think of yourself this way, but we are the down and out. We are those who are the criminals, the vagrants, the whoever. We're not the privileged, not in the sense of the parable, but we get to come into the wedding hall and fill it and enjoy the banquet. You know, in Revelation 19, you can actually read about this moment, not the parable now, but the real thing. Right at Jesus' second coming, John tells us this, Revelation 19.6, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah for the Lord of uh, our God, the Almighty reigns, just imagine that like thunder. And then he says, it goes on, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself to be ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So as Jesus comes back from heaven at his second coming to set up the kingdom, Notice that at that time, there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the wedding feast that we've been talking about. And we, the church, collectively are that bride. And notice how we're dressed. We're in wedding clothes, fine linen, bright and clean. We are the ones now who get to enjoy this great privilege by God's grace, which he made available to us in the light of Israel's earlier rejection. And we will be part of this event Because God is just, though, and because he's true to his word to Israel, Israel won't be out of this picture entirely. They're still represented in this feast moment as well. But the generation that saw Jesus come in his first coming, that generation will largely be missing from this moment because they were too busy with their world to consider the next. And then Jesus ends the parable by pointing out that there will be one other group uh, considered in this moment And they will miss this entirely. I want you to look at the last bit of this parable, verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the parable ends with this curious moment. You have the king in the banquet itself and he discovers there's somebody in the wedding banquet without proper attire. Now in that day, uh, daily clothing was simple. Uh, Usually an undergarment, a tunic, and then a a heavier outer tunic on top of that. Very little else was worn except sandals. And you wore that day in and day out. It got dirty. You know, obviously from being on all the time and typically it would get worn, maybe torn a little here and there. You'd mend it a little bit, you know, make the best of it. And that was your normal everyday clothing. So when you went to a formal occasion like this and you wanted to look your best, the clothing you wore on that occasion was distinguished from daily clothing, not in the sense of style, but rather just in the fact that it would be clean and in good repair. It was basically the same outfit, just a clean one. Remember, these guests have come from the highways, though, in this parable. We're not talking about people that had a nice home with a large wardrobe. We're talking about people who had nothing but what was on their back. So if they were going to attend this wedding and look proper, someone would have needed to give them good clothing. So apparently, in this banquet hall, you have it filled 
with you know, the, the down and the outcast, but the king has taken the extra step of providing each of them new clean clothing so that they would all look appropriate at this event. And then you have this one guy. He stands out like a sore thumb because he has shown up wearing his daily dirty working clothes, which means that he never accepted the invitation because if he had accepted the invitation when it was offered, then he would have been included in the group that received proper clothing. So apparently he decided to join the party on his own. He felt he could come on his own terms and he didn't you know, receive new garments as a result. So being without the proper garments, he stands out, the king notices him and coming to a wedding not dressed properly is a sign of disrespect. I mean, imagine in your own circumstances, if you held a wedding, it was a somewhat formal affair, you expected people to show up looking their best, and somebody looks like they just came from working on the farm. You'd wonder, what were they trying to say to you? And so this king looks at this man and says, how dare you come this way? And when he approaches the man with that question, how do you come this way to my wedding, the man, you notice, is speechless during the confrontation because he doesn't have an excuse to offer. And then the king has this man bound, which is a way of treating a criminal, bound and thrown into outer darkness. Now in terms of the parable, outer darkness is simply a way of speaking about the night, throwing him out into the night. But we know that this is speaking of something much more serious in real life, a literal place of judgment. We're gonna study this place more when we get to another parable in Matthew later, so we're gonna hold off on looking into this euphemism for eternal punishment until we get there. Just know that that's what it's picturing, eternal punishment. Now that leads us to the final question in our parable. Why did this man receive such harsh treatment merely for his fashion faux pas in this wedding? Well, remember what I read back in Revelation 19, that scene of Jesus' return and the wedding supper of the lamb that took place or will take place. Do you remember how the bride is described in that scene? John says we were wearing white, fine, clean linen, and he emphasizes clean. That clean clothing is a picture in the Bible of the righteousness of the saints given to us by the groom. We don't show up with our own clothing. The groom assigns us his clothing. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So the Bible uses that very simple, beautiful picture to represent how someone is saved, how someone gets into heaven, as we would say. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and as a result, you receive his righteousness, and that that assignment of his perfection, which allows you to enter into heaven, is pictured as his clothing, perfectly clean, bright, spotless clothing. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that is literally what happens for every person who puts their faith in Jesus. They're wrapped in his righteousness. Because, friends, you have none of your own. Literally, we are wearing dirty, soiled rags, very much like the men and women, I assume, who were picked up on the sides of the road and brought to this wedding. We can't show up looking like that because you're not allowed in if you look like that. So as we show up to the kingdom wedding feast, the real one now that is going to happen in our future, we will be properly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But... If anyone should think they can be in that moment without the proper clothing, if they should think that there's some other way or they just assume that somehow God is gonna give them a pass on this requirement and that they're gonna be able to stand with Jesus 
in that moment without the proper clothing, let me assure you that will not be possible. Remember this man who tried to show up on his own terms. He was bound as a criminal, as he rightly should have been, and is thrown out into eternal punishment. That is, in fact, what happens to those who don't have the right clothing in the moment of judgment. Now, perhaps you're one of those people who just has always assumed that when you die, when you face God, whatever you imagine that to be, that you just kind of talk your way past that moment. You know, you've got a good story. you've, You've been practicing it. You've worked on all the details, and you're gonna get into that moment, and you're sure God's gonna listen to you, and you're just going to work it all out. Maybe you've joked about that with yourself or with others. Maybe you just haven't thought about it very much. You just assume it's gonna work out. Well, let me remind you with what I started with this morning. No one will pass judgment on Jesus. Jesus will pass judgment on everyone. And if you think you'll have something to say in your defense, then you greatly underestimate the severity of that coming moment. Like the man in this parable, when you stand before Christ on that judgment day, you will be speechless. There will be no excuse. There will be no dispute of the facts. You will be seen for who you really are, who we all are, a lifetime of sin apart from the grace of God. Our sin is self-evident to a holy and just God. We all know that. That is exactly why he made his son to take on flesh, to become a man who would then bear your sin in your place as he went to the cross standing in your place there under judgment. You know, Easter is just a few weeks away. I know we're all hoping that maybe by that point life is returned to normal. Perhaps it will. I'm not sure what the odds are. But regardless of whether we celebrate Easter together in this room or whether we do it online, it will be the same event with the same meaning. A remembrance of the great sacrifice Jesus made for sinners just like me and you and everyone. But even now, you don't have to wait for Easter in order to receive the free gift of salvation that's offered by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. And friends, you don't wanna be like those who are distracted by the world. You don't wanna be thinking you can find your own way there and your own power. You want to be like those who recognize this is a chance of a lifetime and I don't want to miss it because I can assure you, you don't want to miss the kingdom. Let's keep our mind on that and not on this world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Father, I lift up before you the hearts of those who have been listening, wherever they may be, who have been moved by the word and thinking about these things and about reflecting on on your grace and on their need for your mercy. And I pray, Father, that in the privacy of their home or wherever they are, with family or by themselves, that they would speak out to you now, asking for your forgiveness, putting their trust in Christ's death in their place, knowing that he has done all the work and that by his righteousness they may enter the kingdom to come. Father, move their hearts. Make this time of trial and difficulty a time of great harvest for your glory. Let us be your instruments toward that purpose. And for the body of Christ who hears this, Father, my brothers and sisters gathered at your feet listening to your word, I pray that all of us, Father, would have a sense of urgency in the days we live. Even if this should pass and life should return to some normal pattern again soon, Father, let it have its work in our hearts to remind us that everything is passing away one day so that we might make the most of these days for your glory. Help us to be bold and to speak the truth in love to those who want and need a solution. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of your word today. Bring us back next week as you 
Give us opportunity so that we can continue to learn. I pray this in Jesus' name.